So, so study has always been central to Judaism, but not only study has been central to Judaism, particularly, and we could maybe one day we'll do a class on education, you could add that in that, uh, Jewish education, history of Jewish education. So, but, it's, but also, in more particularly, books. Jacob didn't have books, as far as we know, but books have always been central to Jewish life. And the reason why, um, the reason why I chose to speak about this today is because 25 years ago, almost to the day, um, there was a case, big case in New York, about a big library of books. And uh, it involved the Chabad movement, which um, became, which is why it's something that, um, that, that was ve that's very important to me, to us. And um, I'll tell you a little bit of the background, then we'll talk about Jewish obsession with books. So the Chabad movement, and we spoke about Chabad a couple weeks ago. Chabad is a Hasidic movement that started in Russia about 250 years ago and um, expanded here in the United States. And it was led in the, till 1994 by the Rebbe, um, who was the 7th leader of the Chabad movement. And he succeeded leadership from his father-in-law, whose, um, whose name was also, whose name was Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson had um, two daughters, one of which was married to the Rebbe. And, um, and he, led, he, he, he led the movement and he died in 1950. And so he had, now the movement had, an, a, um, had, a, had the, what was called the Chabad Library. And this was a very large library, still there, it's in New York, it's in Brooklyn. It's one of the largest Jewish libraries in the world. Um, that had been, um, there was actually, there was an original Chabad Library. There was an original Chabad Library uh, that had been around for um, hundreds of years, um, going back to more than 250 years. Now, when World War I began, when World War I started in 1900 um, years ago, uh, 103 years ago, in 1914, when World War I began um, and the Germans invaded Russia, um, the um, fifth Chabad Rebbe at the time, Rabbi Shalom Ber, uh, was living in a small town called Lubavitch in Russia. And he moved the entire library um, to, I think it was to um, Kharkov, to a big city in Ukraine for safekeeping, to, put in a, to keep it safe during the war. And only the um, most valuable manuscripts and books um, he took with him in boxes and carried with him. He, he fled um, from the onslaught, of the German onslaught to um, southern Russia, to a city called Rostov. Um, anyway, he, um, after the, communi the communist revolution, which was 100 years ago, um, in 1918, after the Russian revolution, um, one of the things that the communists did is they seized all private property, including all private libraries became national libraries. And so private libraries from across the Soviet Union um, all became national libraries. A number, there were a number of very famous Jewish libraries in Russia. Before, the, before communism began. Um, all those Jewish libraries became state libraries. All those Jewish libraries today remain state libraries. And um, the state library in Moscow, the National Library of Russia, is probably the most valuable Jewish library in the world because it has um, the Ginsberg Library, which was the largest Jewish library at its time in, um, when it was seized in 1917, and many other very prominent libraries. Um, so the Chabad Library was also seized then as well. Um, 
and at the and uh, but the 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 most valuable books and manuscripts were still there with um, the Rebbe still had with them took out of Russia when they left when the previous Rebbe left in 1927. Meanwhile, he restarted his library, continued collecting books, and got books from others. Um, and by the time he died in 1950, he had built, he firstly had the valuable stuff that he had always had, and he, he built a pretty sizable library. Um, now, the, there was another part of the library, there was actually another part of the library um, that included some of the valuable things that had been taken from Russia that actually um, were caught up in the war and um, were meant to be shipped to the United States. His library at the time was supposed to be shipped to the United States during World War II. Um, most of the library did end up getting shipped to the United States during the war before the US entered the war. What they did is they put the entire, the entire library was transferred from ownership of Chabad in Poland to the ownership of Chabad in the United States, becoming a US um, item, and was then shipped as a neutral country um, belonging to a neutral country during the war. Um, but the, a number of boxes, including the most valuable boxes, and the most valuable manuscripts and books, got lost. They were discovered in the 1960s. They were discovered in Poland, in the, in the, war in the Warsaw Library in Poland. And the Polish government, who has been excellent about giving back Jewish things, different governments in Europe have different records. Um, the Polish government has been by far one of the best in giving back Jewish works um, of art, Jewish library things that ended up in government or returning um, Jewish buildings. Um, and they've been given, Poland has been excellent in returning Jewish things. And they gave back everything that they found. Everything was given back. The Russians retain and still retain in Moscow um, a library of 25,000 rare books um, that belonged to the original Chabad library. It's still sitting there in Moscow. Um, there had been, um, they were sued here in the United States. They, they were sued in Russia where they won, and the, the Russian government doesn't recognize its own courts. They were sued in the United States um, where they won. A number of European countries have been sued here in the US for stolen Jewish things in Europe, including the Austrian government and others. And um, they cannot have any, they don't have any assets in the United States because of these lawsuits that are pending against them here in the US. So, um, so anyway, in the 1980s, um, in, the in the 1980s, so the Rebbe had this very large, there was this very large Chabad library that still stands today in, the United, in Brooklyn. And in the 1980s, the previous Rebbe had a grandson. And this grandson, um, this grandson went into the library, he had a key, he was related, he had a key, he went to the library and he stole a number of the rare books in the library and sold them. And um, when it was discovered, it took a while till they discovered that it was missing because they didn't regularly check all the rare books. They're under lock and key. But it took a while till they discovered They discovered who it was. And um, they immediately put a hold on their sa the sale of all these rare books. Um, and um, they immediately worked to, um, and they went to court to put a hold on it. And so the grandson then went and sued Chabad um, saying that the library was a pri privately belonged to his grandfather and is therefore his own personal inheritance and does not belong to um, the Chabad movement. So this was a big court case in 1985. It was a big case. Um, uh, uh, there was this big court case 
And then in um, 1987, which is 25 years ago, um, sorry, 30 years ago, 30 years ago, January, January 1987, um, the uh, federal court in New York, where, it was, uh, where the case was judged, um, ruled that um, it was done without a jury. The federal court ruled that the library did belong to the Chabad movement, and it was a nat- it was indeed a national library. It had never been a private individual library, uh, but was but was a com- was a community library belonging to the entire community, and so they were given back the books, and um, and so um, a- and so the reason why this is important is because. It really put a lot of focus on the Chabad, the Chabad leaders' focus on books and collecting books. And not just Chabad, but Jews in general have built huge libraries all over. So the Chabad movement has built a library and has been very, very valuable to the Chabad movement. And um, the, during World War I, they, the leadership worked hard to make sure that the books did not get lost during... as as um, they left Russia, were kicked out of Russia, they insisted on taking the entire library that they had with them, which they did in the end. Um, during World War II, they worked hard to keep it. And there's, th- there's this obsession, almost, with books. If you walk into Jewish homes, you always see books. You walk into a home of someone who's gone to, um, Jews with a kind of Torah background, you'll see a lot of Torah books, but in any Jewish home, Jews have books. Every Jew has a bookcase in their home, almost every Jew. Jews have books, right? Everyone here has a lot of books. Jews have, have a lot of books. And you don't see it so much. I mean, other people, non-Jews have books as well, but Jews have this obsession with books. And we have always had this obsession with books. And books have always been very precious. And sometimes people walk into my home, many of them, I think all of you have been in my home at some point, um, and you've seen, we have a lot, I have a lot of books. And... Um, People always ask me if I read every single one. And I'm going to be honest, I haven't read every single one. Um, but I use a lot of them for reference. But books are collector's items. You know, walk into somebody who collects art or somebody who collects, do you need every piece of art? No, it's collect- you collect it because it's something sentimental. It's something valuable. Books have always been sentimental to our people. They've always been valuable. They've always been very, very sentimental. We've put a very, very strong premium on books. And books have always been extremely valuable. And the reason, of course, is because books are the source of scholarship. And because we have been a people of learning, you cannot learn without them. Now, you may have heard the term before. We are often referred to proudly the people of the book. Anyone heard that before? Jews are always called the people of the book. The source of that is actually um, comes from the Quran, believe it or not. That's the first place where we are referred to as the people of the book. Um, and it's a derogatory term used for both Jews and Christians. Um, but Jews already in the 9th and 10th centuries, um, Jews in Arab lands, used that term from the Quran to describe themselves proudly as the people of the book. And um, we were, I mean, the book is usually the Bible or Tanakh, in our Hebrew Tanakh. Um, Christians never use that same term, people of the book. And that's because of our huge focus on books. Now, of course, when Moses died, before Moses' death, he wrote the Torah, five books of Moses, which is a scroll that contains five books. And that's the most valuable, that's the teachings given from God. That's the most valuable book we have. 
We treat it with utmost care and respect. Um, we keep it in the ark. We always, we always um, show it um, love. We kiss it. We always hold it. We never let it go to the floor. Um, we, keep it, we treat it with very, very great respect and awe. The Torah scroll itself, the Torah scrolls were copied. Um, and we've had, we've retained um, Torah scrolls. So there are many, many different Torah scrolls. Um, the oldest Torah scrolls that we have are about a thousand years old. It's still spread. They're written on parchment. Parchment doesn't survive, like stone survives, or like pottery survives. Parchment doesn't survive as long. Um, but, uh, but we have the oldest about a thousand years old. Um, we also, though, um, at some point, we, we then also wrote other books. Um, 19 books were included in our scripture, in our Tanakh, besides the Torah, the five books of Moses. 19 books were set as part of our Tanakh, together making with the five books of Moses, making um, 24 books. One day we have to do a class on Tanakh. Right? Tanakh, that would be important. <coughs> the Jewish Bible. So, Bible, by the way, is Greek for book. Bible is Greek for book. So, it was the book. That's what it is. It's the book. It's the most popular, best-selling book ever. So, um, so, the, so the Jewish Bible is our Tanakh. Um, so, we had 24 books. There were other books from that period that were written that we have that were not included in the Tanakh. They were not considered holy. They were not written with divine inspiration. The 19 books that we canonized as scripture, and they were canonized in the days of Ezra, in the days of the men of the Great Assembly, which is about um, 2,300 years ago, at the very end of the Persian period. And, um, the, and uh, he left a couple other books out. There were some that he put in that were very controversial. Um, Ezekiel was the most controversial. Um, but, the, but there were books like Ben Sira that was from that period that were left out. Some of those books were put in to the New Testament. We, we left it out. We didn't consider it very valuable, but some of them were added in the New Testament. Um, so, after, now, the books of Tanakh, the Torah itself gives us, gives us our laws. The other 19 books do not have any laws in them whatsoever. They many time, times refer to the Torah of Moses, we have many references to different laws, the building of the temple itself and the service in the temple, but also many references, references to Passover, references to other laws um, of the Torah, kind of in telling how it was kept. But it doesn't actually give us laws in the rest of Scripture. The laws only came from Moses. The actual rules and the laws were part of what we call our oral tradition, and they were passed down orally from generation to generation to generation, and they were not supposed to be written. Now, during, um, during what's called the Classical Era, which is the period of the Greek Roman Era, which goes from about, I think it's from 328 BCE till um, about 300, about a 600-year period. Um, so during the Greek Roman Era, um, Jews began to organize the oral tradition. We organized it in a system called the Mishnah. We then organized it in a system called the Talmud. Jews did write down some of what they wrote, but they never published books. <coughs> they never made them public. They never published books. We did not of law. We did publish books of other things. We had books of Maccabees that were actually originally written in Greek about the stories of Hanukkah, and they were added to the New Testament too. Um, 
we wrote books of history. Um, Josephus wrote in Greek about history. We had books in Hebrew, Seder Olam, that was written of history. We had a book called um, Migilas Tainis, written about the Jewish festivals, the Jewish occasions and dates, um, most of which um, we don't keep anymore, but these kind of the many, many different Jewish um, occasions that they had back then uh, for all sorts of different things that happened. Um, so we have a number of books that were written back from that period. It wasn't until, and so while we organized our Torah and we put together a Mishnah, we put together the Talmud, and people wrote for themselves, presumably private books. Most things were passed on orally, word by word. Now, how our oral tradition passed on word by word without messing it up is a <laughs> class for itself. We once did a course, um, we did it recently. A year ago, we did a course on, it, on how it happened, on how they did it. So, uh, but it was passed on. And then at some point, we began to actually write. So we continued to write scripture. And we actually have records. We found Dead Sea Scrolls, which come from about the um, second century. We also found, um, we also found um, some letters from the second century in Egypt. Um, we found um, in... Um, in an island on the Nile, in the southern Nile, where there were Jewish soldiers stationed in the Persian Empire, they found a whole bunch of letters that referred to keeping Passover and all sorts of other different Jewish commandments. Not Torah. We also found, um, there was another collection of letters found somewhere in Egypt uh, about 100 years ago um, from the first or second century. So we found a handful of documents, random. But remember, paper and papyrus and parchment doesn't last. So we haven't found very much, right? Um, but we have, but we have retained from the seven or eight hundreds already. We've retained, um, we've retained scraps of, um, we've retained scraps of scripture um, or books of scripture. The earliest book of entire book of scripture that we had was the um, Aleppo Codex. It's called. It's a book of the entire Tanakh, uh, written by Ben Asher who was a, a grammatician in the 700s and uh, lived in Syria and, or in Tiberias and in Israel. And um, we had that codex. It was in Aleppo. It had originally been in Egypt. Maimonides used it and writes about it. It was in Aleppo for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, it, was, it disappeared in 1948. There were riots in Aleppo after, Israel became, after Israel's independence and the codex disappeared. It showed up in Israel in, 19, in the late 50s. Um, someone had, who had apparently taken it out of a synagogue. It showed up in Israel, but a number of pages were missing. We're missing a significant portion of it. Well, probably it was probably saved during the riots and it probably got ruined at different points. It probably, we don't know its entire history of everything that happened um, to it. <coughs> we have, we do have records of kind of people before it was went missing wrote down different details about the codex, like went and studied it. Um, I don't think they took photographs of the entire codex, so we didn't have it. Um, but it went missing in 1948. <coughs> but we now have it at Sits in Jerusalem in the um, in the um, National Museum, 
Um, there's also a Leningrad codex that also comes from the 700s that's also missing some pages. Also a book of Tanakh. Um, so we have a handful of those. Um, the oldest Torah scrolls that we have, I think, are about seven, 800 years old. So not as old. And I don't think they're complete either. Um, we did find, and this is perhaps the greatest Jewish find, was in the late 1800s, very end of the 1800s, they found in the synagogue in Cairo. Now, Egypt had an ongoing, con a continuous community from the days of Jeremiah. There was a continuous community in Egypt. Um, it is after Babylon, which no longer has a community either. Um, Egypt was the longest Jewish, standing Jewish community outside of Israel. And um, in Cairo, there had been a community um, from really when Cairo was created um, by the Muslims in the 700s. So, um, so they found a, in the Cairo synagogue, which had stood for 1,300 years, they found, built in the 700s or 800s, they, they found they, they had put away what's called the Geniza, with the holy scraps of books. We don't, we don't, we're forbidden from, um, from um, throwing out books. We usually bury them. But often they didn't bury them. They put them in the attic. In a lot of synagogues, they actually put them in the attic. And so in Cairo synagogue, they kept this geniza for hundreds of years. And so they, they started going through it. They were cleaning out the attic. And they found this massive room, this room that had thousands, tens of thousands of documents that had, some of them had withered away, but many of them had survived, going back to the 700s covering a period of about 500 years, from 700 to 1200. And they found all sorts of letters, um, books of Jewish law, um, all sorts of books, original books from Maimonides, from Rav Sajid Gaon, from, I mean, from all sorts of different Jewish figures. And I mean, it gave us a huge new window into that whole period. Um, unfortunately, things were not organized when they were first discovered, and collectors went and walked, carted off bits and pieces, um, and uh, bits and pieces of it ended up in private collections and museums and libraries all around the world. Um, there's now a, a big chunk ended up in um, the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, a big chunk in Oxford, um, a lot made it to, um, to Jerusalem. Um, there's now there's a Cairo Geniza project to digitalize all the entire Cairo Geniza from around the world and put it all in one place on the web. Um, you could go there, you could find it, Google Cairo Geniza. So, um, so we did find many, many books over there. So Jews have, so we started, so Jews didn't actually start writing though. We wrote letters, letters of laws, because people had um, questions, but we, and we, people wrote personal books, but we didn't actually start writing books until um, about the 9-10-hundreds. In the 9-10-hundreds, Judaism had been, until then had been centered either in Israel or in Babylon. After that, Judaism spread out across the Mediterranean, really across the world. And um, it was hard to retain the oral knowledge that we had retained for so long, because um, central to retaining oral knowledge is having a very large number of people all memorizing it together, right? Because that way everyone corrects each other. Um, so it was hard to retain. So we started writing books. We wrote down the Mishnah. We wrote down the Talmud. We wrote down the Midrashim. And people started writing commentaries on books. And very quickly, we, had a, we started building significant libraries. And all these books, remember, were all handwritten. Every book was handwritten. And people would write, every student would write their own books. 
student would come to yeshiva to study Talmud, you wrote out your own Talmud. You wrote out your own books in order to study everybody. Unless you could hire someone else to write a book, you were very wealthy. People would write their own books and scholars built libraries. We could see from some of the scholars of medieval times and the books that they quote, scholars that quote dozens of books, um, had libraries, some even have hundreds of books. Not printed, hundreds of manuscripts that either they collected or that they wrote out themselves. And that's what people do. Maimonides himself had many manuscripts and he wrote it out or he, he collected them. Um, and so did most other Jewish writers. Now, as we wrote books, and books were very, very, very hard to write, we wrote, and, but we wrote extensively. Remember, most Jews were literate. All Jews were taught to read and write at a very young age. And they, they had to learn to read, they had to learn to write, they learned the Torah, they had to write out their own prayer book. You wanted to pray, you write out your own prayer book, unless you memorized it. You wrote out your own um, Torah book, your own Tanakh. Um, you wrote out your own book for the Talmud. If you wanted to study with Yeshiva, you wanted to study. People wrote. These were very, very valuable, these books. However, during the medieval times, we also, um, especially for Jews living in Christian countries, they faced constant threats from their Christian neighbors, including um, constant claims that our books are anti-Christian. And one of the libels against us that was most common and still stands today, you hear it all the time, I hear it all the time, is that the Talmud is anti-Christian. Or the Talmud is offensive to Christianity. Or now, the Talmud actually does mention JC maybe two times explicitly. One time it's debatable whether that's who it's referring to. Um, both times um, showing why it's wrong, which is understandable. I mean, the Talmud itself obviously didn't believe in Christianity or in the New Testament. Um, Talmudic scholars, though, didn't write very much about Christianity because they didn't live in Christian lands at all. They lived in Babylon, which was Mesopotamia, which was Zoroastrian at the time. So it was under Persian rule, it was Zoroastrian. Christianity hadn't reached there at that point. So they didn't really deal with Christians. They didn't really know Christians. Talmud doesn't have much about Christianity. So, but when we came to Christian lands, they did not like the Talmud. And after a big disputation with Rabbi Yechiel of Paris in Paris in the 1200s, um, he was forced to debate um, uh, a number of bishops. Um, the, the king of France declared the Talmud anti-Christian and all Talmud and Talmudic related works had to be burned. So they went and they searched every Jewish home in France, in all of France. And they took every single book, handwritten books, and they filled 12 wagons. I don't know how big those wagons were. But you can imagine, we're talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands of handwritten works were gathered in Paris and were all burned. This is what year? This is the early 1200s. This is before or after Rashi? This is after Rashi. Yeah. This was early 1100s. This is the 1200s. I think, it, I think it's actually 1264. I might be wrong about that date. They burned all those books. Now in Paris itself, Rabbi Yechiel of Paris was the chief rabbi of Paris, had a yeshiva with hundreds and hundreds of students. They had no books now. All their books had been burned. It wasn't just the Talmud, it was all the books? 
Everything. All, all commentary, all books of Jewish laws, everything. Everything they could get their hands on. They burnt everything. Some books were saved. We know books were saved. I mean, Jews hid books, but they burned a huge amount of books. Rabbi Yechiel of Paris said, we're not closing the yeshiva. We're going to go back to the old style. And he's remembering that. He, what he did was, he had every student, he said, is going to memorize everything. They had hidden a few books. Every student is going to memorize an entire book of the Talmud. There's 35 books of the Talmud. Every student is going to memorize one book. And whenever we're studying and we need a quote from a book, we'll turn to the student who, that's his book. And um, that way, they'll have the entire Talmud memorized and they will study from memory. And they did that until Jews were expelled from, from France in the early 1300s. So, but the same happened in Italy, across Italy. There were many, many burnings um, of um, the Talmud. Um, and this, this was a common thing that Talmudic, work, um, Talmudic works, the Jewish works were burned. And you could imagine how much more valuable these books became as they got burned and they got harder to, um, they got hard, hard to get hold of um, as Jewish books were burned. Um, uh, and often, of course, in pogroms, which were very common, um, they would also just kind of randomly destroy everything. They'd burn synagogues, they'd burn all the books in it too, burn Jewish homes and burn the books in it. So we, lo we lost a lot of books that way. And we have a lot of books that we knew existed and are gone. We have a lot of books that we only have fragments of and bits and pieces of. Um, we have books that we have quotes from and other books. Um, but we've had, but we've, we've always tried to retain um, and grow our library. And throughout this period of written, the written Jewish commentary, which goes from about the 900s to the mid-1400s, which is a period of about 500 years, we ended up with hundreds, probably hundreds of books that survived, that we know of, that original books that were written. Today we have tens of thousands of manuscripts that survive, um, handwritten. We have one entire set of Talmud, which is a massive set. It's 20 volumes in the Hebrew, 73 volumes in the current English translation. But we have one massive set of Talmud. In its, we have a lot of books of Talmud that survived the manuscript. One entire manuscript that survived, um, which is in um, the um, Bavarian um, State Library in Munich. It's still there today. And uh, the Bavarian State Library, by the way, has the, um, one of the best Jewish collections in the world. Um, and they didn't buy it. They didn't buy the books. You could be certain of that. <laughs> but it has one of the best Jewish collections. Um, so did many other European libraries, and most of those books were not bought. They didn't pay for them. <coughs> Rabbi, question. What's going to happen with the Mashiach coming about the, the Jews as a whole? Uh, well, who, will we take all the books back? I don't know. I don't know. Um, we have, I mean, most libraries now we can access the books. The Hebrew Library in, um, the National Library in Israel actually has a project of, of photographing um, every single book, Hebrew book, publicly available. Um, the best libraries are in Russia, the National Library in Russia, and the, there's a number of good libraries in Russia because, as I said, they confiscated everything. Um, they gave them some trouble because once you have evidence that the book exists, it's hard not to. And with a lot of these books have stamps of their original library um, and names in them. Um, 
so it's hard not to um, give it to them. Um, the library that's given them the most trouble, that probably has one of the best Jewish collections, is the Vatican Library. I was going to say, oh. talk about that. Yeah. The Vatican Library is a closed <laughs> library. It's not public. It's not open to the public. Um, it's only open to the curators of the library, and they ended up with a huge amount of books that they did not pay for. Um, and um, they do have, um, apparently, they have the only existent, they have the original my book of Maimonides. There is a book, Oxford has an original manuscript um, of Maimonides' commentary on the Mishnah with Maimonides, not that he wrote, but that he saw, it's a signed copy that he signed himself. Um, but apparently the Vatican has the original book of Maimonides. It's not publicly available. The only downside to that is that the Vatican doesn't still do things publicly. They actually keep the books that we don't distribute. We hope. We don't really know. We don't know. All our information. So, um, yeah, so, anyway, so let, let me just finish the history. I'm, I'm getting carried away too much. It's too fascinating of a story. So, the story of the Jewish book. So, now everything changed um, in the late 1400s. In 1453, um, Gutenberg, not Gutenberg, um, um, Gutenberg, yeah, was. Um, invented the printing press in um, Italy. And um, suddenly, instead of handwriting books, we now had the ability to massively print books, print massive books. Now we know, now back then, it wasn't like printing today that you hit print and it printed. Back then, you had to sit and carve every, and put in every single letter. Originally, before they were putting in letters, they were carving. Every single plate was made from wood and was hand carved. Or they wouldn't carve the head like they would press the plates, press the letters onto wooden plates in the original. And they were not all that legible. Um, if you see some old books printed from the 1400s, um, they were not all that legible. But now you could print the Talmud and you could have thousands of copies just like that. Jew now Jews know how to read. And Jews like reading and like books. Jewish printing was huge. It took off straight away. Before you knew it, before the 1500, which is that period from 1453 to 1500, is called um, in, in I think it's called, which is the, like the very rare books from before 1500. There were hundreds of Jewish books that were printed then. Um, and Jews were buying them up. They printed the first Torah then. They printed Torah with commentary then. They printed, um, they started printing the Talmud. They, it wasn't finished till 1530. I think the first Talmud was printed um, in the Bromberg edition. Um, what, and um, they printed, uh, they printed books, or they printed many, many books um, in those early days. There were Jewish printers, and there were even Christian printers loved the um, Jewish business because you were able, Jews bought books. It was a great business. And so in the early days when most printing press was still in Germany and Italy, many Christians went into the business. And in fact, the first Talmud was printed by a fellow called Daniel Bromberg, who was a Christian printer. And he printed the first, um, uh, he printed, and he hired Jews to print the Talmud. He printed the first Talmud. And, um, and it was very popular because within a few years, he went through multiple printings. And they kept reprinting, and, Jew and very quickly, Jewish printing presses, um, there were Jewish printing houses that grew very big. There was a f in Italy, there was a very famous Cincino printing house that printed many, many Jewish books. With time, printing moved to uh, Germany, to Amsterdam, 
and then eventually to Eastern Europe. Um, now, one thing that we discovered, though, when it came to printing was printers in Europe always had, uh, they all, um, generally when books were printed in Europe, they were always censored. You couldn't print a book that was anti-Christian or a book that was anti-the government. So all printing presses had, had a government censor. It was normal part of printing. You had a government censor. Jewish printing presses were extra censored. They had Jewish censors or censors who were experts <coughs> in Jewish books, and they would censor everything. And they, they changed everything. They changed every time it said non-Jew, they decided that the Talmud is very anti-non-Jews. So they um, decided every time it says non-Jew, or the Hebrew word is nachri, they changed it to akum, which means oved kochavim umazalot, worshippers of stars and constellations, so it shouldn't include Christians. Every time it said, every time it said nation, um, which often means nations of the world, or the Hebrew word goy, which in Yiddish means non-Jew, they also didn't like that word. They found it derogatory, and so they changed every time it says goy. Even when it says referring to the Jewish people, they changed it also to akum. And they came up with all sorts of other things um, that they changed. They changed all sorts of other words throughout the Talmud, censoring it, pulling stuff out. Um, and through all sorts of other Jewish books, they always censored um, to make sure. But meanwhile, Jewish printing continued to grow. Um, but we had to deal with this censorship problem, um, which was a serious problem. Um, and in one printing in Russia, and this is my favorite story of the Jewish book, um, in one printing of Russia, in the, uh, one printing in Russia, the Russian um, censors censored out so much in the Talmud, they censored out very, very large parts, a lot of the Talmud. <coughs> this was really problematic because Talmud is hard to read now with so much, with being so heavily censored. So <coughs> they went to the czar, or the minister of culture, who's usually the person in charge of the censorships and all the printing, and they said, we have a problem, this is Jewish genius. They said, we have, they said, thankfully we now have the correct version of the Talmud as properly censored by the czar's censors. However, in other countries, they don't know what to censor out from the Talmud. So we want to print a book of everything that's supposed to be censored out from the Talmud that will sell in other countries so that they'll know how to censor the Talmud. So, they, so that other countries will know how to censor the Talmud properly as the czar wishes. So they then printed a book of all the censorship, of all the censored parts of the Talmud. So that's, that's Jewish genius. <laughs> so, uh, but we continued to, um, with time, um, printing improved. And from having to carve out a wood, we realized you could make these, you could mold these metal letters, make these letters out of metal. You could mold them and, um, and make them by the thousands, make, them, make a lot of them. And then you just need to place them in, um, in their spot. And then in the 1800s, we got even smarter. We invented typewriters and typesetting, typesetters that you actually, they're kind of like typewriters where you actually can put a plate, can type into a plate and um, create plates for printing, um, real plates for printing. Um, and so um, then the 20th century, we got even smarter. You don't even have to make new plates. You can take old books and photostat them. And you could do, you could make photostat plates of earlier plates. 
Um, and so as printing got better, Jewish books got better, and more and more and more Jewish books got printed. But Jew and Jewish libraries began to grow, and Jews continued to buy books. Um, books related to Judaism, books related to other things. Jews were always <coughs> reading. By the early 19th century, every Jewish community had a library. In Vilna, there was a very, very famous um, library that had been built by the community, a massive library um, that the community paid for. And it was a place where people would hang out, people would study. And with time, every Jewish community built libraries. Um, where people that didn't have their own books could go and study. Many individuals started to collect their own libraries. Um, in fact, we know Rabbi Yosef Karo, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, had a library. He lived in the, in the 1500s. He had a library not long after printing. He had a library of hundreds of books. Some probably printed, some still in manuscript. Um, we know Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai, who lived in the 1700s in Israel and wrote a, um, he was one of the first, uh, one, of the f one of the first bibliographers. He wrote a book of all Jewish books that he was aware of. He had more than 10,000 Jewish books. This is in the 1700s. He had more than 10,000 Jewish books. He traveled extensively. And we know of other Jewish leaders and Jewish communities that built these massive, extensive libraries. Often you could see from scholars from who they quote, you could tell how big their library was, right? how many books they had. And we see Jews had libraries, yeshiva schools had libraries, but Jews collected books. And with time in Europe, there became this, um, this um, profession called a moicher svarim, Yiddish for bookseller. And the moicher svarim essentially would go, he would have a big wagon full of books and would travel from village to village, from shtetl to shtetl, selling books. In fact, one of the most famous Yiddish writers used a pen name, Mendel Moichasvarim, Mendel the bookseller. That was his pen name. And so, Naren? No, 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 I was saying, um, you saw a rental a couple months ago, I never yeah. seen it before, but that's, they're going around with the carts and she grabs the books. Selling books. So that's, so that's what we always, we had, they would go around, they would sell books. Um, all the bigger Jewish cities had Jewish bookstores, and there were all many Jewish bookstores. If you went to a Jewish, and still today, if you go to a strong Jewish community, you go down Pico Boulevard, Fairfax, you go to the strong Jewish, you go to you know, Brooklyn or in Jerusalem, and you go to any, any um, kind of strip where there are stores, together with the restaurants and the um, clothing stores, you'll see tons of bookstores. It's not something you normally see. You normally see one Barnes & Noble in a mall, if you're lucky, right? In, in Jewish communities, even today with Amazon, you see tons of bookstores. Jews buy books. We're obsessed with books because our life is about books and it's about study. And we collect books, we value books. Books have always been so precious to us. So many times we dealt with, um, we had to face burning of books, of our books. Um, one of the a more recent time after printing was available in Krakow in the 1600s. In the late 1600s, there was a Jewish cult um, called the Frankists. Frankists. It was a Jewish cult. Um, that Anyway, the Frankists caused Jews a lot of trouble in Poland during this period, and they claimed that the Talmud was anti-Christian, and they had this massive 
debate against Jewish leadership in Poland and Krakow. Um, this is in, uh, sorry, in the early 1700s, I think. I forget the exact year, maybe 1730s. Um, they had this big debate, and um, they, um, this is a famous story. This is actually told, we have a number of different accounts of the story told by different people that witnessed it. Um, they had this massive debate um, where a number of leading Jewish rabbis from Poland were forced to debate um, these Frankists. And at the end, the bishop of, um, the archbishop of Krakow, which was the capital of Poland at the time, um, uh, ruled that the Talmud is anti-Christian and all Talmuds in Krakow will be seized and burned. And they seized many, many Talmuds and made a massive pile in front of the, um, in front of the, um, the um, big church in Krakow. And um, they were ready to burn all those books. And um, as the archbishop walked down the stairs of the church, he fell and he died. Right then and there. And that is the uh, kind of miracle of Krakow. We, we have a <laughs> number of accounts of the story um, of um, books that were um, almost burned, um, but they didn't end up getting burned. But um, many times we have to face our books being collected, our books being stolen, our books being taken. The books have always been very valuable to Jews. We collect books. Um, even now that we have Amazon, we still collect books. Uh, we like the book. And um, unlike other people that read a book and throw it out or give it up, Jews collect, they keep, they hold on to books. They're, they're sentimental for us. They're very, very valuable for us. We've built libraries. There's many, many, many Jewish libraries all over communities. We built libraries. Um, Jews have always been obsessed with books. We remain obsessed with books. It's central to our identity and central to who we are.